0: Welcome to The Resilient Surgeon, part of the STS Surgical Hot Topics podcast. Our goal with The Resilient Surgeon series is to inspire our colleagues to be their best selves in and out of the operating room using scientifically proven tools and recovery strategies of the world's top performers. I'm Dr. Michael Mattis, and in each episode, I will talk to game changers, some of the world's top executive coaches, psychologists, an ex-Navy SEAL officer, and physician scientists who will share evidence-based practices, real world strategies, and their own personal stories and experiences to help you build your resilience and to help you be your best self no matter what. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Society of Thoracic Surgeons.
1: We've seen this in the military, we're seeing it in healthcare. And so it's this is a deep, deeply personal mission to me, not in the sense of you know this idea of saving everyone, but I do believe that if we can create a community that is grounded in these ideas that are on one hand aspirational and exciting, it's not rooted in this negative narrative of burnout, but of how do we take better care of ourselves and serve others at a higher level and have a more sophisticated understanding, I think that is the first step in normalizing these things in a way that 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 doesn't feel like. Um, it's being forced on on folks. And because we know that modern healthcare is under immense stress. And I've seen, I have many friends like you who've been through that crucible and without the right tools and the right community, they you, you know better than me, they, they don't end up in great places.
0: That is Brian Ferguson, ex-special operations officer and CEO of Arena Labs, talking about his efforts to bring to physicians and surgeons the very same technology and coaching that he brought to a Navy SEAL underwater team that was designed to ensure their optimal performance and prevent exhaustion and burnout before it took hold. On today's episode, Brian shares his deeply personal journey to serving physicians and surgeons, starting with his mother, Martha, through his experience as a Navy SEAL officer, all the way to his brother Drew's struggle with mental health. Brian's story is a riveting one, filled with perspective shifts, optimism, and dedication to the science of optimal performance. And by optimal performance, he means the best that you, as an individual, can give for any life challenge. The program will return after a message from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Dr. Ara Apportion. I'm so excited to share news about the new STS Cardiothoracic Surgery eBook. It is the most complete and authoritative online resource of cardiothoracic surgical information available anywhere in the world. and It was authored and edited by the specialty's leading experts. This ebook provides a rich multimedia educational experience that includes regularly updated content in both cardiac and general thoracic surgery. So no more waiting for the textbook publishers to issue a new version every few years. We use the ebook in my training program and the residents love the high quality illustrations, photos, and surgical videos. The new ebook is available online or through a mobile app, that it's available in the office, at home, or at any point of care 24-7. To see a sample and learn more about the STS Cardiothoracic Surgery ebook, go to STS.org ebook. Today we have a very special and unusual, but incredibly appropriate guest on the Resilient Surgeon. Brian Ferguson, former Navy SEAL officer and now CEO of Arena Labs. And I have to sincerely thank Dr. Kevin Lobdell, a member of the STS Task Force on Wellness, for introducing me to Brian. Brian is also a member of our task force because of his dedication to helping physicians avoid burnout with the platform he has created in Arena Labs. Arena Labs is a company dedicated to coaching physicians and surgeons with personalized analytics that track sleep, stress, and recovery, combined with coaching from some of the world's top performers, including physicians surgeons, Olympic athletes, military team and operations experts, and masters of creativity. Brian has a very interesting backstory that I hope to dive into. And he has lived a very full and varied life prior to founding Arena Labs. His education includes an undergraduate degree in diplomacy and foreign affairs from Miami University in Ohio, a master's in international political economy from the London School of Economics. But now this is where it gets interesting. Brian has also held multiple high-level positions in our government, including Director of Intergovernmental Affairs for the White House Office of National Drug Control Policy, and he was Special Assistant to the Secretary of Defense formulating policy on national security related to the Middle East, Africa, Europe, and special operations. After all these jobs, he joined the Navy as an officer and became a Navy SEAL with deployments to Afghanistan and the Middle East. It was during his time as a Navy SEAL while stationed in Hawaii that Brian was working on emerging tech as a means to amplify human performance during undersea special operations. When he became the director of the Undersea Innovation Cell, which was tasked with using advanced technology to support special forces during undersea clandestine operations at a tactical level. It was through this experience that he became deeply interested in the use of technology to enhance performance. So the question is, what brought such an accomplished man like Brian to our world of surgery and medicine? That and much more is what I hope to learn today. Brian, thank you so much for all your work on the STS Task Force and for being our honored guest today on The Resilient Surgeon.
1: Thank you, Michael. It's humbling hearing you you intro me just because you've become such a good friend and someone whose introspection and wisdom I deeply admire. So thank you. And, yeah. and I should say we should double down on our friend, Dr. Kevin Lobdell for introducing us and, and you know, really for me, uh, challenging and, uh, a lot of my worldview and helped me to understand your world of, of particularly surgical, the surgical theater better. So thank you, Kevin.
0: Yeah, I agree with, the, with your assessment of Kevin. I mean, he's an incredible uh, connector, if you will, of people and ideas, really yeah. a, a master at that whole thing. So yeah, I, I find your story so interesting. And and you know, the sort of uh, i I like to think of life as being a series of fortuitous concatenations. Mm-hmm. And I've found a lot of people don't know what exactly concatenations mean, but a concatenation is a linked series of events, you know, like links in a chain. And our lives have a way of unfolding often through a series of fortuitous concatenations, if you will. And you certainly seem to epitomize uh that pathway. So I'd love to jump into some of the backstory about your family, your mother Martha, um, yeah. and in her work in healthcare, and and then if you could just kind of take us down the fortuitous concatenation lane <laughs> of Brian Ferguson and how it led to Arena Labs and your deep commitment to working in the healthcare field.
1: Yeah, I'd be humbled to share whatever whatever we think would be useful here to to an audience that I'm, I'm grateful and humble to be working with. So
0: let's do it. So. It starts in Cleveland. Yeah, let's go back yeah. to where it all starts. Yeah, Cleveland, yeah, God's Mark. Although, although I will say, uh, funny,
1: very random tangent, but I, I was born. In fact, I just, uh, in the spirit of of the surgical theater, uh, a friend just stayed here who's doing residency at University of Kentucky, and I was actually born in Lexington and spent the first three years of my life in Lexington. But mm, you know, okay. I've seen no memory of that. But but yeah, to your to your question, my uh, when I think about home and youth and growing up, it is all definitely in what I call God's country, Cleveland, Ohio. So very, very grateful to be a Clevelander at heart.
0: And tell us a little bit about your mother, Martha, in, in particular, because in talking to you, I know that she had a profound influence on on, on your perceptions of the world of, uh, of healthcare. Absolutely. So my mom was one of
1: nine. For those who are not familiar, Cleveland, Ohio is a very, um, you know, one of these classic Midwestern steel towns. Uh, very ethnic and diverse because of the steel industry that was thriving in you know the, the early 20th century. Uh, my mom was part of a, a large Irish Irish Catholic family, one of nine kids and that was a huge part of my life but, but my mom in particular fell right in the middle and it's interesting she had a grace about her. Uh, she passed when I was 19 but she had a grace about her that you know even though she was my mom and I know I'm biased it's still to this day you know the way her siblings and friends talk about her uh, it was just really otherworldly. Uh, but she was also what I call a service archetype. And and this is something now, you know, we can reflect later, but my time in the military, uh, my time now getting around, you know, other, other parts of healthcare, there's a certain persona that's drawn to serving others, doing hard things and and really making an impact in the world. And my mom was certainly that. Um, but where that manifests in terms of my own story now that I, I didn't know at the time, you know, we were fortunate to have a pretty idyllic, you know, evenings when it was possible, we had a, the. I had a brother, and my father, and mom, four of us. We'd have dinner around the the classic Midwestern dining table. And that what what I now talk about a lot. My mom was a nurse, and she would come home. She worked uh, most of her career when I was young in the operating room, and she would come home from a rough day. Um, she was also in the recovery room, but but when something, you know, it was either an event that was adverse uh because of a personality or a patient um or something you know I, I vividly remember her losing a patient i still have a very very clear memory of this moment where my mom just had this heaviness about her um and they had lost a patient and that you know my mom was not an emotionally dramatic person um but you could feel that i could because she cared mm-hmm. so much Mm -hmm. And so that really, for me, I didn't realize at the time how much it impacted me. And and I think interestingly was a very powerful thread for my brother and I to follow that service archetype path, because I also, the flip side of that is I saw how much she loved her work.
0: And your brother's name is Drew. Correct. Yeah. Yep. And just to touch on that a little bit, because I think we'll probably circle back to some extent, but Drew, did he did he go into the military early on compared to you or what was, what was kind of his, a little bit of his backstory?
1: He did. So my brother was three years younger than me. Um, mm-hmm. And funny memory. I mean, again, we grew up, you know, idyllic in a sense, this, this small town, about 20 minutes West of Cleveland. And we literally and, and sort of figuratively grew up with the city. Cause we moved in, it was f- primarily farm country um, more of a, you know, middle-class blue collar uh, sort of demographic. And then, as we age, the city really was built out just because of, you know, growth in Cleveland. But we had these woods behind our home. Um, I don't know, acreage, but it was untouched woods. So a big part of our life was out exploring woods, et cetera. And my brother from a very early age knew he wanted to go in the army. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, I think my mom hoped he would, you know, go to school first. I think either way, she, she would have been proud, but he ended up going to college at Ohio university and then went to the army. Um, and so he, he was also in special operations. He was a ranger, uh, and then became a green beret. And, wow. uh, just, you know, he, it, it sort of, despite, it was the first time in my life where my younger brother was really a mentor to me, which was kind of wild later on as, you know, I pursued a path, you know, down the right. road in the military. Right.
0: Yeah. But there was, there was no, or was there a threat of military service in your, in your family's history, or was this something that really was driven by Drew's desire to be in the army?
1: I, you know, I think classically, so so two influences. Both of our grandfathers were in World War II, which which is mm-hmm. really, I, I think, you know, probably statistically common for for that demographic. Um, one grandfather was in the Navy; um, it was a surface warfare officer, and the other um, was actually in the Air Force, um, or excuse me, in the Army Air Corps, um, flying. Uh, he was flying, escorting long range bombers, um, hmm. and had a pretty prolific life as a P-51 pilot, which is, I like, got fighter pilot at that point. Yeah. 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 Um, so that was a always a framework of service that was a big part of sort of leg- family legacy. Not, it was mm-hmm. never something that was glorified or talked about a lot. It was just there in a way that was, was a, a proud source in the family, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And then three of our uncles were in Vietnam um, in varying degrees there of, I would say complexity around what that meant. Um, but ultimately was
0: again, proud framework that yeah. became a subtext of a lot of family gatherings. Yeah, that's a well put subtext. There's a lot of subtext in families and any any community, isn't there? And yeah, yeah. So it, it it filters in. Okay, so you know you you decided to go to college. You go to Miami of Ohio, mm-hmm. correct? Yeah. And, and what was your undergraduate degree there? And what was your interest at that time? It was primarily in international
1: relations, and it, mm-hmm. you know that you said earlier in the intro, diplomacy and foreign affairs, which which sounds sexy sexier maybe, but ultimately <laughs> international relations. And, it, you know, for me, a very formative event to your to your point about, you know, the, the sort of the sequence of things that happen, but vivid memory, 1998, senior in high school and the war in Kosovo was happening. And for, I don't know why, I, I think interestingly, back to my mom, because she was one of nine, large family, obviously, you know, not a lot of financial resources, um, very self-sufficient, you know, all of, all of the kids, but she didn't get to see a lot or travel the world. And so she was always encouraging me to, to do that or think about it, I suppose, even subtly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I remember seeing that war unfold and being fascinated by statecraft and sort of the idea that there are these major decisions that affect the state of people in other parts of the world and geopolitics. Um, and so that really was the door to me into wanting to understand you know, that, that broader world. And I so I went to college, and um, I, I had a you know professor there who was just a phenomenal influence on me, and um, and then another sequence of events that led me deeper into that world. But um, I loved it.
0: And then after London School of Economics, is that correct?
1: Yeah, I took a break though. I um, when I was in college, I mean, for those who are listening, even with kids, I suppose, because in our demographic at this point, you know, are, are well beyond school. But I think a lot about. Um, you know those summers for me, I was an intern. So when you, you know, for for someone who's going to go into the world of international relations or public policy, my dad used to kid around that it's like the best deal in the world because you basically you go work for someone, sixty to eighty hours a week, unpaid, um, and it's sort of a cut your teeth experience. And so I had an internship initially. Um, the the congressman where I went to college was John Boehner. Um, he oh. Later became mm-hmm. speaker of the house, but at the time mm-hmm. he was um, chairman of the Education and Workforce Committee went through a sort of a serendipitous sequence of events. I got an internship there. Hmm. Um, and that then led to me in a very fortunate way, going to intern at the White House the next summer. I see. So um, that turned into my first job. So when I left college, I went to work in Washington, D.C. for three years. Um, and then I went to grad school later. So I was. I see.
0: Yeah. So that's the that's where you got into the Washington
1: world. Yeah. And that's a whole nother podcast, I think, but yeah, yeah. um, I call that my inauthentic period sometimes. I mean (laughs) because I I think when you're a young man or woman and you end up in Washington, DC, it's hard not to be absorbed by what other people think. I mean it's the nature of how politics and all of these things work where there's a there's an overarching dogma or set of ideas that that you are, you know, you should be prescribing to. And so when you're, you know, for me at twenty two, I just didn't know what I I didn't know enough about the world yet. I was still and and it was um On one hand, I had more responsibility and opportunity and mentors than I can ever be appreciative of. On the other hand, I think it was a confusing time because I was sort of sorting out my own worldview. Sure. um, sure. And ultimately decided I I didn't want to spend my entire career in government. Mm
0: -hmm. So then the decision to go into the Navy, what what was uh, what's the what's going on in, in your world at that time?
1: So when I, after my internship and then first job of the White House, I, I was very fortunate to end up at the, in the Pentagon in something called the Office of the Secretary of Defense, which, which sounds like a singular office, but it's actually a massive part of the Pentagon. Um, you know, half of the Pentagon, roughly speaking, I'm, you know, just it is uniformed military. And that's where, you know, many people listening have heard of the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the Joint mm-hmm. Chiefs. That's the uniform side of the Pentagon. There's another side that is civilian. So people who show up and wear suits and ties and do either policy work or maybe they do very specific work. Like today, there's a big, you know, just last week they made a big announcement about investment in artificial intelligence expertise. And so I went to work in OSD or Office of the Secretary of Defense in the policy directorate, which is one of five directorates on that civilian side. And that was an absolutely extraordinary. That's where I really felt like Again, there the inauthentic period of sort of bouncing around politics was just not well suited for me. But when I ended up in the national security architecture in the Pentagon, I always appreciated that you know no one cared who you knew. It was about what you knew. And you know there, there, uh, there was so much more involved and in, in, in there in, even though politics were part of the conversation, what I saw in military leadership was a deep desire to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And I recognize that's a whole nother conversation ethically, but um, in terms of one's own worldviews, but it was an amazing time for me. And um, in two, so I started there in about 2005, so two wars going on. And ultimately what, you know, every senior leader in national security from the president to the national security advisor, to the secretary of defense had a special operator typically advising him or her, Condoleezza Rice, President Bush, and so a number of those special operators were people I was privileged to be working from, for or with, and they became mentors. And that's when I really started to see that, that the path to special operations was intrigued me. Mm-hmm. And there's sort of a, you know, I had looked at going into the military when I was in high school, um, longer story about service, but, you know, ultimately for me, I wanted to be in uniform, not, not you know, in, as a civilian.
0: Did you go into the Navy with the intent of, uh, of becoming a Navy SEAL?
1: I did. Yeah. And that's one of the things about the Navy that's unique. Um, And, and, you know, there, there are other ways to do that, but for me, uh, multifaceted, I think if I really go into my subconscious, my grandfather who I was very close to was a Naval officer. And that was just something that I was always very connected to. I love the water. My hometown was on Lake Erie. Avon Lake Ohio is, you know, literally, so I, the water, even though it wasn't on the ocean, was on a massive body water always drawn to the maritime environment. And then again, um, a number of the, the, the leaders who I worked with in the special operations community happened to be seals. Mm -hmm. And I just loved that it was a smaller community, this real balance between intellectual and, in, in
0: sort of, um, physical intensity. Physicality. Yeah. 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 And when you went in, were you prepared? What, what would have, what would have happened if you hadn't made it through buds?
1: Um, I, I actually don't know. I mean, I, I think this is, um, I would well, I do let me, let me I would have ended up serving in the Navy as an officer in mm-hmm. another vertical, meaning could have been an intelligence, it could have been a surface warfare officer. There, there are some people at the time who are being discharged because they maybe didn't have a job for you. That is ultimately a big part of the risk calculus when you you know decide anyone. and, and this is why I always always admire people who make the decision to pursue special operations. Statistically, most people don't get through. Mm -hmm. Um, but there is so much to be said about pursuing that part of, of the heart's desire to go do something hard, whether you make it or not, that I just always really admire people for, I I don't say that to be, you know, self-aggrandizing. I just think that I've already forgotten how much angst I had about what happens (laughs) if,
0: because ultimately
1: like there are a whole bunch of variables that you can't control. You can get injured. There's things that, you know, just, so, um, it was, you know, I was leaving a career that was, you know, reasonably flourishing to, to, to
0: go pursue that. And not to get overly reflective here, but I, I, I have always looked at the surgical residency and, and, and training in surgery. I mean, it's difficult, obviously, um, but it's also a period, despite its difficulties, where I really learned so much about myself and what I was capable of. And I can't imagine that it's not the same <clears throat> for somebody going through BUDS and that kind of intense physical training. Do you have any thoughts around that regarding yourself um, or any other observations?
1: I will say that that period for me was unequivocally the most formative period of my life. Yeah. Um, On every level, understanding leadership, understanding myself, understanding the power of the mind and my own potential, understanding Mm -hmm. um, so many cliches, you know, never judge a book by its cover. I mean, it was just uh, an accelerated dive into, I think most, that's why I find human potential so inspiring because at the end of the day, special operations training is like, it's really about understanding your own potential. Um, What I will say at the same time, I don't say this just because our audience are, you know, mainly surgeons or people who who work in surgery, but I I actually think in some ways that surgical residency is harder um, because, you know, basic, basic special operations training it you know the, the the crucible component of it is roughly about six months, and so although there is a period of extreme sleep deprivation uh, to show you what you're capable of, you know many surgical residents are doing six years of that, and it's six years of I mean I, I just I continue to be humbled I, I think I appreciate that. Um, we hold up special operations training and revere it as a society. But I think a lot of people overlook how hard surgical residency is. It's just madness.
0: Okay. So then as part of your work as a Navy SEAL officer, you are assigned to, or you're stationed in Hawaii for the undersea work. Can you describe that a little bit? And, and now this is where your story and the path intersects with healthcare ultimately. And so if you could, you know, create that link for us, uh, great. Yeah. So
1: for those who are listening that are not familiar, each of the special operations communities are different, meaning, you know, as I mentioned, my brother was a Green Beret and what are Army Special Forces, and their, their sort of geographic um, locations and deployments are unique to the Army. And the same for the Air Force um, and now the Marine Corps. In the Navy, generally speaking, special operations are on the East Coast in, in Virginia Beach and on the West Coast in Coronado, California. There is a sort of a a smaller unit based in Hawaii that focuses all in undersea. So I was stationed out there and I, at that point, uh, when I made a decision to leave the Navy, what happens is you, you tend to have a one to two year, I'll call it glide slope where you are exiting. And the reason for that is you're no longer operational. So you're not deploying anymore. And some people use that time, you know, if if someone's been in the Navy for 20, 25 years, they use that time to really think about what's the next chapter. How do I prepare myself? It's really, that's a really important liminal space of transition Mm. because I had come in later, you know, I was 28 when I joined and I'd had, you know, roughly six years of work experience. I knew two things. I knew I wanted to go work in, in a, in, in sort of a, a creative entrepreneurial capacity, And I wanted to work in human performance and we can come back to why that was, but I was starting, you know, I had been so impacted as I said earlier in my own experience in special operations that I I wanted to understand how I could amplify that in other communities. So as a result of that, when I decided to leave, I had about, I think 14 or 18 months of glide slope before I officially left the Navy. And so here I am in Hawaii in this unit um, just to create maybe a little more context for folks you know, coming out of this is back in 2014, I believe. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the the conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan were, were significantly waning, even though they would they would go on for a few more years. Um, and there was this sort of return to thinking about other components of geopolitics and particularly underwater. And so the unit I was at, there was, there's a lot of interesting things happened. I worked for this extraordinary leader, uh, a guy named Travis Schweitzer. And Travis knew that part of my background had been in doing some work in emerging technology and innovation when I was in the Pentagon. And so he gave me this amazing opportunity to go out and think about innovation at this unit. But in the context of two things, one, how do we bring emerging technology into that domain? Uh, Meaning things like 3D printing or additive manufacturing And then how do we do that in a way that amplifies the human operator? Because Hmm. the problem with technology, it's very similar to that. I see this a lot in the surgical theater. Technology is great, but if we don't think about how technology intersects with the human system in a way that is amplifying or additive, it actually does the opposite and it detracts from the, the efficacy of the human system. And so as a result, I had this dream job. If I was no longer operational, I was getting to work around emerging technology and human performance. What ends up happening is I get, again, I, I've got these amazing leaders and teammates and you know um, guys I'm supporting, and I start collaborating with a whole bunch of unlikely partners, because generally when you're in the military, let alone special operations, you, you tend to talk to other people in special operations or maybe people in national laboratories, but you're, you're generally speaking within the architecture of the federal government and the military.
0: Right.
1: And one of the things I recognized, and that, that uh, again, the leader I worked for, Encouraged me to do was go out and, and find fresh relationships, a new perspective. I later would call that the ruthless pursuit of multidisciplinary relationships or mm-hmm. unorthodox like relationships. Like go out yeah. and you know just find people who think different. So I ended up at Red Bull um, as one example. There's a guy named Dr. Andy Walsh, and and uh, Andy had led some of the most exciting work around human performance and extreme events and extreme sports and skydiving. Um, I was at you know professional sports teams and, and learning these would be exchanges or, you know, if, if we were traveling, we'd meet these people. And, and so you're, you're ultimately thinking, you know, asking, how do you think about human performance in a human system in the context of a high performing team or a high performing mission? Uh, and going back to the beginning of our conversation, I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, my mom was a nurse. And so one of the things that was always uh, that Clevelanders are proud of is the Cleveland Clinic. And, and the Cleveland Clinic, you know, when you look at it, the main economic engine of the Cleveland Clinic is the Heart and Vascular Institute, which I think this right. year, for, you know, for the 27th year in a row is one, ranked number one in the world. And so I knew that this was a place that had this global notoriety and, and it felt like a place that would be a, a great spot to go learn about technology and human systems. And so I blindly, I was back in Cleveland um, and I, I blindly emailed a, a cardiothoracic surgeon there named Doug Johnston and to Doug's credit uh, now knowing him, he's, he's one of few people who would probably respond to a complete stranger and say, yeah, why don't you come in and let's have a conversation. And the, the sort of context of my email was, hey, I, you know, here's what I'm doing in the military. I know you guys are world class. I'd love to come in and just observe how you're thinking about technology and human systems and performance. Um, and so Doug invited me in. We had breakfast together and he had me come watch him do two cases that day. And I'll never forget that, you know, on one hand, I was blown away by the technological advancement, the sophistication. But on the other hand, I just couldn't believe that culturally, medicine had almost no focus on human factors and performance at the individual or the team level. Um, And that then, you know, life starts to your point, connect in reverse, because now I think about my mom's angst and sort of stress after a tough day. And here I've been on this journey where I was privileged when I was in special operations to be taught a set of tools to manage human factors for myself and and in a team context. And so that begun begins this odyssey of really wanting to better understand, you know, how medicine might think differently about these things.
0: So then you get out of the Navy and where does, what's the genesis of the idea for Arena Labs?
1: At the time, uh, my higher order interest was still in what I call human potential, meaning what is it how do we bridge the gap between who we are and who we have the capacity to be in our lives. And I still think that is one of the most inspiring. When you look at it, it's sort of universally inspiring concepts, I think human potential is one that people just everyone appreciates in some way, because that's all what we're all after. And I think there's a, you know, there's a longer conversation about making sure it's done in the right way, you know, not pursuing for pursuit's sake, but saying, how do I, how am I better as an individual, as a father, or as a teammate, but human potential was really exciting to me because of my experience in the military. It had fundamentally, Mm -hmm. even though I was 28, 29, 30 years old when I finished training, it had fundamentally changed the arc of my life because I better understood my own capacity. Right. And then human performance for me was how day to day are we, are we performing in our own life again, across a whole bunch of variables. But what I think is so exciting is that we're in this era where, between technological advancement and data, we, we start to have access to these tools that allow us to better understand the human mind and body in ways we never thought possible. And so when we bring that to bear, it's just it's extraordinary. And for me, I wanted to do something mission driven. I'd thought about going into medicine again, you know, because of my mom's influence. Instead, I went into international relations and national security, but here I was coming full circle. And that service archetype, I felt at home in medicine. It was very similar to coming out of the military in the world of government where people who want to do hard things impact lives and you know, ultimately have a, have a significant role in the world. And ARENA became this notion we call high-performance medicine. That became, for me, an exciting mission of how do we bring all of that stuff that's been perfected in these other fields I was working in, whether it was is it in special operations around elite athletes or the creative arts. Enroll that into healthcare so that people in medicine can start to better understand themselves, perform at a higher level, and ultimately do the thing they wanna do, which is provide better, better you know, patient care and quality. And, and so that, that evolved over now five
0: years. It's such a beautiful example of the power of fertilization of one area by another area. I mean, it, you know, it's just incredible. So you know, the fact that you're bringing this sort of thinking to the world of medicine through your own personal experiences is just fabulous. Yeah,
1: yeah, I'm grateful. And I think, you know, I'm always humble about the fact most of the things that we're doing, I, I'm, you know, I, I don't ever claim to be the originator of, it's really about, you know, taking ideas I was fortunate to be taught or to absorb in other, other areas or by other experts and then rolling them into healthcare. But it is, I think I've told you and I've talked about this before, but for the listener, there's this great term I'd never heard called consilience, Uh, Mm -hmm. And my friend, Michael Mobison, who is the chairman of the board of the Santa Fe Institute on Complexity, wrote a book on this. He's a prolific investor. And one of the reasons he's been so successful as as an investor is that he's very good at looking across a wide range of disciplines Mm -hmm. and then finding connective tissue that creates new epiphanies. And, And the idea is that consilience is that notion when you put two people together with similar problems from different fields, you can create a new perspective. And and I think that's really what we're doing at arena is look, you know, we're never going to tell a thoracic surgeon how to do his or her job better, but we can say is look, here's how some other people with a similar set of challenges and stress and high stakes environments do their, do their job a little bit
0: better. And that that's compelling. Yeah. And this is, what's so exciting for me about arena labs because you're bringing, you know, to some extent, even the world of wellness, uh, within, you know, uh, in, within the world of medicine, you know, we always run the risk of living in our own echo chamber, you know, uh, unless we bring in outside you know, uh, perspectives and resources. And, and I think one of the small things that I've been able to bring to this is by virtue of the very vigorous study that I've done of outside you know, thought leaders in these arenas, which has changed not only my life entirely, but my perspective on a lot of things. And this is one of the things I so appreciate about what arena labs is, is doing uh, here. And I think, you know, one, one way that, one thing that you said that really sort of highlights that is, is your view on burnout as, as being a lagging indicator. And could Mm -hmm. you, could you just comment on how you, how you approach that notion of burnout and what it means?
1: In the context of what is really important, I think for the listener to understand again, is, is me being, um, more of a steward of things I learned elsewhere. But but what I find interesting about burnout in, in modern medicine is it's, it's eerily similar to what the military has experienced in the last 20 years. What I mean by that, when you think about the emergence of two wars starting in 2001, 2002, that went on for, you know, in high intensity for about 15 years. Uh-huh. We were asking, and and it's important to understand what I mentioned earlier, which is the service archetype, because a service archetype, whether that's a teacher, whether that's a soldier, whether that's a surgeon, those people will give of themselves and give of themselves and give of themselves against the better angels of their nature until they have nothing left to give. And so leaders and organizational infrastructure have to be built to protect that. The military had not done that. And so what we saw has manifested in, in, you know, uh, a lot of unfortunate negative outcomes from PTSD to, you know, high rates of suicide. And so there's some very hard lessons learned in the military. And when I was in special operations later on, I was standing on the shoulders of giants who had really sacrificed in higher levels, a lot more deployments, a lot more intensity. But what that meant was part of my training, both as a student. And ultimately when I, you know, early on in my career was in understanding human factors and understanding the things that were necessary for me to be emotionally from a physical and mental perspective. And that's everything from, you know, how do you think about sleep and hydration to how do we think, you know, some some very specific programs that were built into pre and post-deployment where you're going to be separated from your loved ones or your family for six months doing hard things? How do you reintegrate? So that whole infrastructure influenced me so deeply. And so I show up in healthcare. And, and similarly, that one other important point is just like PTSD in the military, whatever language we're using, that's an end state. And what I saw in special operations when I was going through again as a student was this real push to start measuring sleep and emotional health and just day-to-day flourishing so that as an operator, you have a sophisticated understanding of yourself. And you, when you begin to deviate from that, you feel like you have a toolkit to get you back on path. Not easy, and I don't want to make it sound simple. But this, there was a major investment. So I show up in healthcare, and in even though you know, particularly even pre-pandemic, when I when we first started Arena Labs, burnout was a major issue. Now you know, can only imagine the last two years where that's become, and, and now you know, front page of the news. What's oh, amazing to me is a burnouts an end state in healthcare as well. So when someone's burned out, it's for the most part too late. And those statistics, most listeners know better than me, and what that means in terms of cost financially to an institution, more importantly, human cost. But what is what has always been missing and so surprising to me in healthcare is that if, if we were to take, well, let me come back to that. But so, so burnout's an end state and in healthcare, there are no trends or leading at indicators. No one's collecting data. Burnout is measured as for the most part, self-reported annual surveys that you know better than me have a very low rate of completion. So right. the data is bad and there's no predictive element of it. And so that for me became this fascinating challenge at arena labs. And what we built in arena strive is how might we build a platform just like the world of special operations, just like elite, lead athletes have where day in and day out, people are treating themselves with the capacity to be high performers so that they have a toolkit that makes them feel a sense of agency.
0: And so that, that gets right to arena labs. And, and let's just say, Uh, I sign up for arena labs. Okay. Mm -hmm. What does that look like, look like to me? Yeah. So one other point here, I think if one of the things we started to
1: realize is that if this problem existed with patients, if you had a big blind spot in some element of patient care, there would be this radical investment to understand how to put data against that. Yeah. How to test. And, And amazingly, there's still this vacuum in healthcare, So two things had to happen. The first is we had to start to convince people that it was worth the investment, which meant fundamentally a a paradigm shift. And what I always say is that, you know, with all due respect, I think this idea of of patient care, patient quality is one of the most insidious narratives in healthcare, because what it does is it focuses on the externality of, of, of something else. And again, in the service archetype, giving of yourself and giving of yourself without any tools it's, it's what's leading to this challenge, especially when you, you know, you amplify the stakes like something during COVID. And it, it gets um, at that
0: subtext issue again, in a way, yep. doesn't it? It well. just, it's just sort of, you, you just feel like you got to do it. And if you're not, you're not measuring up and it's, it's, it's a subtext thing.
1: And again, this is what the military learned the hard way is that if we don't put things in place, the people will give themselves to, in this case, that mission is deploying overseas or it's, you know, it's, it's, and so, so it becomes right. paramount to understand how do we take care of ourselves first? be great teammates, be great leaders. And then if we do all that well, we're probably going to have better patient outcomes anyways. But that the data there is something to be yet to be proven. So to your question, what at Arena Labs, we initially were a services business. So for three years, uh, we were embedding in, in hospitals all over the country alongside surgical teams, alongside ICU and EDs. And it was amazingly illuminative. And what we are doing is teaching workshops around the skills and the tools that we give to, special operators or to elite athletes things like visualization and breathing and understanding sleep metrics and that was for me personally such an important journey as a layman to start to understand the challenges of healthcare not from a technical side but from a human factors and performance side and then about a year ago we built a platform we call Arena Strive which is you know it's it's a product offered within Arena Labs and so when a surgeon signs up or in this, you know, most cases, when a hospital brings this in for a particular team, whether, you know, we're going to roll out in a hospital next month with about hundred clinicians, part of the cardiac OR and the, the cardiac ICU, you get a login and immediately you are exposed to 200 videos that are pushed to you in a, in a sequential format around a learning journey that again, as I said earlier, is going to teach you as an individual, what tools work for you to help you feel like you can manage stress a little better we're not gonna make healthcare less stressful. What we're gonna hopefully do is give people the agency to feel like they, they can flourish a little more. Then we're gonna take you around a learning journey to be a better teammate and understand what is a high performing team. And then ultimately to move into thinking about yourself down the road as a leader or a manager in healthcare. But while you're on our platform and you, you know, you're, you're moving through this learning content, two things are happening that are really important. One is you have a wearable sensor that is giving you data about yourself, just like we do for elite athletes and SEALs. How are you sleeping? What are gaps in your sleep that we can address? How are you understanding your own recovery after a particularly rough day or maybe a couple of days on call? What does that look like? And how do you use that day off to improve your readiness for the, the next week? And so that, that data allows you to understand yourself. We blind that and de-identify it beyond you. So it's not given to superiors or to the hospital but what we do is we give it to our coaches. And so now we've got world-class coaches. Our director of coaching is, um, actually happens to come out of special operations as well, but we have other coaches who, who were not in the military. And what they're doing is saying, hey, Michael, let's look at your data. Let's start to understand what can we learn from your data? What's working for you around these tools that you're learning on our platform, you know, whether that's a breathing technique, whether that's a particular approach to sleep or you know, how you're working with your team. And that coaching experience is rounding out for you this this journey in high performance so that you start to feel like you have a foundation. And then ultimately what we you can imagine is we aggregate that across a team or an organization. So for the first time in history, hospitals mm-hmm. actually have proactive insights and analytics about the health and well-being of the most important asset, which is their physicians and nurses and technicians.
0: God, brilliant. Truly, really brilliant. Unbelievable. So let's just get in the weeds a little bit about the sensor, where it's worn, what kind of material it's picking up, uh, what kind of data that is, and, and, and what, what those indicators might mean. So we have a partnership
1: right now uh, with a company called Whoop. And, and for those who are not familiar, Whoop is a wearable sensor that has done, they, they've just done an extraordinary job. It's a, it's a classic example of why large amounts of data can be profound. And what I mean by that is over the last seven years, they've built a company and a wearable sensor that now has enough users where they're able to do very complex analytics and and continue to invest in their own technology. As an aside, most of these off-the-shelf wearable sensors for listeners who maybe have an Apple Watch or an Aura Ring, they roughly measure the same things. Um, and, And what I mean by that is that the biomarkers they're measuring um, because they have been democratized, are, are roughly the same. Their proprietary algorithms are different. But the reason that we have a partnership with Whoop, number one, they, they are very eager about this, this idea of high-performance medicine and have been great partners in understanding the nuances of the clinical environment and modern healthcare. And so they've, they've, their team has been amazing about working with us, A, to do rigorous research and to validate the, the work we're doing, and then B, to understand how do they tweak their platform for healthcare to to make it more intuitive for clinicians. Um, And the last thing is form factor. So what we see is in most clinical environments where we work, whether that's in the operating room, in the ICU, the emergency department, you know, people have to take watches and rings off. And so WHOOP actually makes a band that allows it to be worn on the bicep. And so that allows, you know, 24 seven coverage. Uh, we'll come back to, to kind of like the acute analytics. If something goes wrong in the OR, that's actually less consequential to us, but we want to catch that if we can. In terms of your question around what does it measure? So the things that we are most interested in that we, so what we do is we pull from whoops API, their advanced programming interface. We take the data, maybe if you're wearing the sensor and we simplify it and turn it around to you in the context of your work as a clinician. And so we're looking number one, at sleep. So how much time were you in bed and how much actual sleep did you get? And that delta is a sleep efficiency. That, that's a that's a really important understanding. Um, because a lot of times people are in bed for eight hours, but maybe they're only sleeping six and a half. And, we, if, and, and for people who can't get a lot of rest, who are on call, we want to help people understand how to improve efficiency of sleep. And then we're looking at stages of sleep. Your slow wave sleep and REM is really important for particularly REM sleep, for clearing emotional stress. So again, we want to teach people how do I, you know, if I'm only going to get four hours in a call room, how do I make that as restful as possible? And then we're looking at heart rate variability and heart rate variability has become a gold standard and, and, uh, it started in sport, but it becomes a really powerful metric of the autonomic nervous system. And what we see a lot is people who are in a sympathetic state all day in and out of operations, seeing patients in a high stress state, they have a hard time shifting to a parasympathetic state to relax at night and get good rest, and so helping people understand HRV as a correlate or an indicator to emotional health is is really important. And then we we actually have a subjective daily what we call arena check-in, and we're asking you how stressed do you feel, how focused do you feel, and how prepared do you feel. And those really basic three questions, when put alongside quantitative biomarkers gives us a really powerful picture. And more importantly, allows a clinician for the first time to feel like, Hey, I'm, this is just like an elite athlete. Like we've worked in professional sports environments. These same things are going on so that an athlete knows when he or she is most prepared or how to most effectively prepare for a big game.
0: Mm-hmm. And how does one, what's the process for entering that, those three simple question data points?
1: So we push a daily survey of, as part of our, our entire experience is packaged within an app on a phone. And this is really important for us. You know, when we were running workshops, I always said that I realized that even though I loved what we were doing, it was a failing strategy because the, the, the life of a thoracic surgeon or someone who works on, in, you know, cardiothoracic surgery is so dynamic and unpredictable it was really hard for us to effectively run workshops in a hospital. It was like herding cats because you know people have an emergency or a day off. And so we had to create a dynamic, exciting experience that a clinician could access on his or her own time. And so there's an asynchronous component. You get on our app, you can move through our content. And what we're gonna do is on a daily basis, we're gonna pull again from your sensor without you having to worry about it, but then we're gonna we're gonna push you that check-in at least once a day. We like just to because this is a sophisticated understanding of oneself. It's like, you know, if, if you look at, I think of Erin Kafara, one of our, she's a gold medal Olympic rower on our team. And she talks about priming the pump, getting ready for a big event. It's about a deep understanding of what we call interoception. And interoception is partly biomarkers understanding how well rested am I? How do I feel? But it's also the part subjective and emotional. How stressed do I feel? Mm-hmm. And, and once I get really good at understanding, I then know the tools I can use to, to impact that. So what we look for for are a short amount of data every single day longitudinally, rather than a lot of
0: data once in a long time, mm-hmm. which is the current approach to burnout. Mm-hmm. And you know, so, I, so just to kind of summarize, we've got the data monitoring, heart rate variability, sleep, uh, we've got the videos and then the check-ins. And I've watched many of the videos and I want to just emphasize they're short and, and they're from a wide spectrum of performance elites mm-hmm. i think it's safe to call them and and we're not talking about just navy seals or special operations we're talking about people in a creative world you know in athletics and that and they they bring their special you know uh, expertise in a narrow aspect to a particular video so that it's a it's a very discreet digestible process for learning some of the techniques to Interface with the data that you're collecting is that a is that a reasonable way of representing what, what you're doing?
1: It is. The content side of us is really important. Our 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 moniker is it should be binge worthy with swagger. And uh-huh. what I mean, as you think about Netflix, we I, I you know much of the content. I say this respectfully. You see it in the military. Uh, very similar problem, which is hey we we have an issue here. We need everybody to watch wash their hands more regularly. So we're going we're gonna to invest 20 grand in a video and we're going to push it across the whole hospital and we're going to mandate that everyone watches this hand-washing video. And it's this really boring, dry content and you have to watch it. Similar problem in the, in the military. So what we wanted to invert that and say, what if we created content like Netflix style where people were so excited to sit down as an example with Haruka Hori, who's a violinist and composer, talking about improvisation and how creatives think about improvisation and So each of our videos, A, they're 90 seconds to three minutes, so they're built for the attention span between cases and a break room on the way to work. And they're rooted first and foremost in science, some degree of science or proven protocol. So this is not sort of ethereal performance content. Secondly, we contextualize it in medicine and say, how might this or why is this relevant to your world as a clinician? And then thirdly, we provide you a practicum or a tool so that you can apply that immediately in your day-to-day. Again, a breathing exercise, a protocol for your team. Um, And that's really important to us that this stuff feels grounded in what we call mutual respect. People who've done hard things and high stakes life and death or high performance environments and are offering that to a clinician as, you know, something to try, not as a, a, you know, known solution.
0: great. So, you know, we're getting close to the end and I'd like to explore, your brother Drew and his challenges. Mm-hmm. And, and and in particular, I just kind of wanted to see if there's a you know a thread here relative to uh, you know, what I perceive Arena Strive and your work doing is not to turn us into Uber high performance machines dedicated solely to striving and just becoming like you know, gods of the universe, but to help us become the best version of ourselves that we can become with the right tools and the right data. And, and part of that involves, you know, an emotional and humanistic aspect. And it's not just all about the data. And so I think your brother drew, this is just my observation points us in that direction. And I I just love to hear your reflection on, on what I just asked or talked about.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm humbled by that question, Michael, and, and I appreciate you grounding us there is why you're always such a phenomenal thought partner and friend. I, you know, um, for those listening, my brother passed away about four years ago now. I, I don't know that I've ever said this publicly, so it's, um, but, but he did, uh, as I mentioned, he was a, a prolific, had a prolific career in special operations, but equally important, he was a very talented singer, songwriter, musician, poet, and painter. And that sounds crazy to say in one person, but it, you know, he was truly a savant in many ways and he, he ended up taking his own life and, you know, there's a, these things are always, uh, multifactorial and really hard to deconstruct, uh, why, or what led to that. But ultimately for me, the pursuit, people who, who have that brilliance in them and have the capacity to serve others and do it, and they give of themselves too much, I think it, it puts them in a vulnerable place if they don't have the right community and the right tools around them. We've seen this in the military, we're seeing it in healthcare. And so it's, this is a deep, deeply personal mission to me. Um, not in the sense of you know, this idea of saving everyone, but I do believe that if we can create a community that is grounded in these ideas that are on one hand, aspirational and exciting. It's not rooted in this negative narrative of burnout, but of how do we take better care of ourselves and serve others at a higher level and have a more sophisticated understanding. I think that is the first step in normalizing these things in a way that that, that doesn't feel like um, it's being forced on, on folks. And because we know that modern healthcare is under immense stress. And I've seen, I have many friends like you Um, who've been through that crucible and without the right tools and the right community, they, you, you know, better than me, they, they don't end up in great places. And so there's a lot of resources going to this in the military. I think personally right now, as a society, we owe this at scale to the people who have been stewarding us, not just through frankly, the last two years of the pandemic, but you know, it's a, it's a really sacred good, the provision of health for a community or society And so those people who are doing that and giving of themselves, I, you know, I really believe we can fundamentally change the trajectory of healthcare if we get this right and get people to look at themselves differently
0: as performers and what what they're capable of. Well, appreciate so much sharing that very personal aspect of your, of your life story. And I'm I'm sorry for, you know, the tragedy of your brother. That's, that's Mm -hmm. for sure. Brian, this has really been uh, for for me, a great interview, a great, uh, and I'm so delighted to have met you and know you and uh, to, you know, experience your experience and wisdom. And, but most importantly, I I thank you sincerely for the work you're doing because I really believe these kinds of paradigm shifts and different approaches, as you said, to to reframe the discussion away from burnout to a more aspirational goal with the data and the materials that are available to us and the community, is really a, a major step potentially forward for our, our world of healthcare. So uh, thank you very much for the work that you're doing in this area.
1: Yeah, I'm definitely a visitor in in your world and it's really humbling for me to, to have life come full circle this way. And I, I can say, I love what I do, but, it, but it, I, it'd be remiss if I didn't say there, you know, at this point we have a team of 15 people who are just all mission driven and come from similar backgrounds and believe in this. So it's been, it's truly to, to have been privileged to work in the capacity I did in national security and now I get to do it in healthcare and be building something, it, I really feel really fortunate that I get
0: to do the work that we do. Well, again, thank you. Thank you very much, Michael. This has been The Resilient Surgeon, a podcast brought to you by the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. Thank you so much for listening. If you like this podcast, please rate it five stars and let your friends, trainees, and colleagues know about it. On social media, you can use the hashtag BeYourBestSelf. More information about the Society of Thoracic Surgeons is available online at sts.org.